Hi everyone, it's T-Dubs. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Whatever I Watch. I talk about social issues, global news, entertainment, and even sports. I cover whatever I see that's worth the conversation. I look forward to our discussion today, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hello everyone. Welcome to my second season of Whatever I Watch. I'm really excited to have another fun season that'll have interesting topics about whatever is going on in the world, because certainly there is a lot to talk about. But I thought I'd start this season with something that I'm personally fascinated by and something that we're all quite familiar with, and that is the topic of true crime. It's been really interesting how there's been this explosion of true crime podcasts and television shows and movies and books. There is a real obsession with a true crime phenomenon, and I thought I'd take some time to discuss it today. Now, this episode, it will have two parts. Part one will be focused on a little bit of history on true crime and some of the most notorious cases that I personally am familiar with. And then the second part, I'm going to invite my sister once again to talk about some of her most interesting true crime stories that she's heard or listened to, as I found out quite recently how obsessed she is about this. (laughs) So I thought it'd be interesting to bring her on board and have her talk through her obsession. So before I get into some famous cases, I had to really take a step back and think about what exactly is true crime? Like I have a mental definition of what that is, but I haven't truly like dug into the history or the meaning behind true crime. And essentially all it is, is either a book, film, a ballad, a song that examines or tells the story of a real crime. It goes way back into ancient civilizations where people were used to storytelling or writings, even in hieroglyphics and plays and poems and songs where they recounted tales of specific types of crime. And it was always viewed as a source of entertainment. And when I read that definition, I had to think back. I was like, wow, I wonder when the first real true crime actually occurred. And the first thing that popped in my head was Cain and Abel from the Bible. Technically, since the Bible was retelling the story of Cain and Abel, really the first murder recorded in history, that technically would be considered true crime. And if you recall the story, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve, who were the first humans on earth. And they were going through some ritualistic prayers where they had to offer up sacrifices to God. And apparently God was accepting of Abel's sacrifice and he was not as accepting of Cain's. And because of that, Cain ended up killing his brother Abel and essentially going into exile. So when I heard that story, I remember when I was a kid, I heard that story. I was like, wow, that is pretty vicious, especially since there probably wasn't a lot of folks on earth at the time. Like you just had, you were at four and now you're down to three. But even on top of that, what was also kind of interesting to me was I wonder when Cain, you know, essentially like beat up Abel or hit him in the head. That's kind of what how you always visualize it, that he kind of knocked him out. I wonder when he did it, did he actually realize that Abel was not going to come back from that? 
because, you know, no one had ever been murdered before. So it really does beg the question, when he did it, did he realize it was permanent? So that's one question I think I'm going to ask God at some point when I make it to the pearly gates is give me a little more on this guy. In the definition of true crime, Cain and Abel would fit the bill. Now we fast forward to where we are today. There are so many shows, so many movies that really cover this genre, all the way from Forensic Files to 48 Hours to Dateline NBC, even to scripted shows like Law and Order, whose tagline is ripped from the headlines. And then you go into shows like CSI, NCIS, Criminal Minds, all of those really were scripted shows, but they also took bits and pieces of real crimes that have actually occurred. It's even gotten to the point where there's TV shows like South Park, which many are familiar. It's kind of this raunchy cartoon geared towards adults, where they actually have a whole episode that revolves around the children of South Park trying to stop their parents from watching true crime because they felt like their parents would get too obsessed with the material and perhaps act out that crime in real life. It was actually a pretty funny episode. And uh, if you're into just kind of parody of uh, what happens in real life, you know, go check out that episode. I personally probably would say I started paying attention true crime through the scripted shows. I'm a huge Law & Order fan. I didn't watch it from the beginning, but I kind of caught up probably in the, the, you know, the ninth or 10th season have kind of carried it forward. You know, Law & Order, SVU, Criminal Intent, that's all in my bag. So I love that stuff. And then more recently, I've started watching Dateline NBC. I'm usually not one that likes to watch about what happens in real life. I feel like we get a lot of that from the news already. But what was fascinating about Dateline NBC, I like how they kind of craft together the story. They give you a lot of background on the individuals, depending on what the crime is. And then it kind of takes you all the way up to the trial and then, you know, where they are today. So I like kind of having a bit of closure when it comes to these types of scenarios where you're trying to figure out, you know, what is going on. So it's amazing how popular these shows are and how um, fascinating it is to really kind of wanting to get into the mind of the killer, wanting to get into the mind of the victim and really trying to understand why do these things happen? Um, Why do they continue to happen? Why do people put themselves in situations that results in something like this? You know, those are the questions I'm always asking myself when I'm watching these shows. Like, didn't you see the signs? Didn't you like hear what he said? He actually meant what he said, but you thought he was joking. Why did you go into that dark alley when you know that it probably wasn't safe? Why did you get in the car with a stranger? So of course, you know, Who knows if you're not in that particular situation, what that individual might be thinking. Hindsight is 2020 as far as how we might reflect on those types of things after the fact. When I was thinking about how I wanted to craft this podcast, I remember there was actually a series of really horrific crimes that happened over a short period of time when I was in uh, junior high and high school. So I thought I'd highlight that back to you because I, I really think these were a catalyst for some of the true crime stories that we're even seeing today. So the first one I wanted to mention was it happened in 1989 and I watched a a documentary 
of this uh, crime. The documentary was called The Lyle and Eric Menendez Brothers, The Crime That Changed Us. When I saw that, I was like, oh, they probably have other episodes that I probably need to go watch. If you recall, this was the story of two brothers who allegedly shot their parents in the Beverly Hills home. The dad was shot like five times. The mom was shot nine times. The police didn't initially suspect the kids. The kids at this point were teenagers, young adults. The dad was this huge Hollywood executive. He was a Cuban immigrant. Mom was like this small town girl. It was just shocking in the news how something like this would happen to these these very wealthy individuals in the middle of Beverly Hills, which should be like the safest and the, you know, the richest place in the world. It turns out that some of the evidence didn't really stack up. The one of the brothers ended up confessing somewhat to a therapist that led to their arrest. And they were essentially arrested, but like seven months later. They didn't really cover their tracks very well. One of the brothers bought a shotgun that was used in the murder. So what was fascinating about this particular crime is that everyone was sympathizing with the brothers. They just couldn't believe that they had lost their parents. And then it the pendulum swung the other way. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, they killed their parents. What monsters? So these two brothers who were good looking, young, ended up going on trial for the murder of their parents. And what just completely just blew everything out of the water was that when the defense for the brothers kind of presented their case, they presented this uh, self-defense strategy, which essentially said that the parents like emotionally and sexually abused these two brothers and they were in fear for their life and they thought the parents were gonna kill them. And when that came out in court, like it was like an uproar. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, what a twist. And what was interesting about this particular case is that there were cameras in the courtroom. It was broadcasted by court TV. And according to the documentary, it said, It was broadcasting from gavel to gavel. So you saw everything. So you saw the family members testifying. You saw the brothers testifying. When the brother, one of the brothers got onto the stand and he was telling the jury about his abuse, um, he broke down and started crying. It, It actually looked very genuine. You could see his other brother trying to hold back tears. So it was just shocking. In this particular trial, you know, these two were on the hook for either voluntary manslaughter or for murder. The juries could not come to a consensus. So the trial ended in a mistrial. It was interesting on the documentary, they actually interviewed some of the jurors and the jurors were saying, hey, um, we were actually kind of split by gender. Like the men felt like they were guilty and the women felt like, well, there's some mitigating circumstances here. So there was, it was kind of interesting how there were like two different uh, points of view. So what ended up happening is that there was actually a second trial. And in this trial, there were no cameras allowed in the courtroom. The prosecution seemed to have focused more on the murder itself 
and tried to shy away from kind of the context of everything that was happening between the boys and the parents. And then they also took the option of manslaughter off the table. So it was either first degree murder or it's second degree murder. And at the end of that trial, both were found guilty and life in prison. I vaguely remember this particular situation. So I was pretty young. I wasn't even yet a teenager. But I do remember seeing some of the headlines. I remember seeing some of the footage on the news. I remember there was just this collective interest across America about why and what actually happened. When you think about these types of cases that really kind of support the theory of what's really a true crime, it really ends up being topics or situations that grab a wide audience. It really seemed like America was fascinated by what was happening in Hollywood. Even in the show itself, they talked about, you know, this seems straight out of a Hollywood movie. And usually when they say that, that generally means it's just so unbelievable that something like this happened that we're all just fascinated to see how it's going to play out. 1989, that was the Lyle and Eric Menendez brothers trial. So the district attorney that had oversight of this particular trial also had oversight of the next case that I'm going to talk to you about. So this happened in 1994, and hopefully this sounds familiar to you. This was the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. And of course, O.J. Simpson was identified as the alleged murderer. Court TV aired this program called O.J. 25, and it was a reflection 25 years later of what they called the trial of the century. A little bit of backstory, O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown Simpson had been married for seven years. She was just this beautiful woman, um, you know, very vibrant, full of life. He was a NFL player, Hall of Fame winner, Heisman winner, so very well known and respected. He was also an actor. Um, any of you who watched um, the Naked Again series, he was actually fairly hilarious in that. He was just a well-respected individual and a celebrity, of course. They were married for seven years. They had two kids and then ended up divorcing. So Nicole Brown Simpson lived in Brentwood. She lived in a very safe community. And then all of a sudden you hear that neighbors had discovered her and Ron Goldman in the walkway of her house, um, stabbed multiple times, lots of blood. Apparently the kids were sleeping upstairs. Neighbors called it into the police and all of a sudden just chaos started. So it was a horrific crime. The show actually provided snapshots of the crime scene. It, it certainly looked horrific. All of a sudden they're like, well, this is obviously OJ Simpson's wife. We have to contact him. Contacted him. He happened to be in Chicago. They asked him to come back. And it wasn't, you know, shortly thereafter where they decided to issue a warrant for his arrest. Apparently, one of the things that led to it is that there was some kind of blood that was actually outside of his house. And even though it appeared that he was in Chicago or had flown 
to Chicago, like right after the murder might have happened, it didn't seem like he had a really strong alibi. So O.J. Simpson decided he was going to turn himself in. And then all of a sudden he didn't. So he had a friend read a statement to the police about his innocence. And then the police start searching for him. And then all of a sudden we have this infamous police chase in the white Bronco. Now I completely remember this police chase because it was on every single news channel, every single regular channel. It was almost like too hard to believe. You have this famous guy who is well-known, well-respected. His ex has died violently. He is being accused of the murder. He refuses to turn himself in. And now he's taking this leisurely ride with a friend of his down this highway in Los Angeles. And the police are chasing him. And all you see is just helicopter footage of this, I'll say a quote unquote chase, because it really wasn't a chase. I don't even think he was going that fast. I think it was like time for him to just like think and revisit his life before he actually got arrested. This thing was so crazy that people actually pulled over on the side of the road. And again, remember he was on a highway and started cheering for him. Like, I didn't even remember this until I went and watched the footage. And I'm like, holy crap. People were on the road cheering for him. Some people even had signs. That tells you how long he was on that highway. So he ultimately turned himself in. His trial actually took nine months. And this is where we kind of get a snapshot of what they called this dream team of lawyers. And I don't know about you, but when you hear about trials or hearing when people are going through certain you know, legal battles, you rarely really hear about the lawyers or, you know, who's on the prosecution because you're more focused on the defendant or the um, person who's bringing the lawsuit. For some reason, his dream team defense team were these heavy hitters that everybody, like you could name them even today, like who they were, like Johnny Cochran, Robert Shapiro, like we all knew who these guys were. They were like household names. And then the trial just got really wild. All of a sudden, the prosecutors wanted to present OJ as this abuser, and that was part of their defense strategy. And they used the police and other witnesses to try to kind of taint who he was. And and then when the evidence started coming out, it was just insane. And some of this stuff I didn't even remember. So when I'm watching this documentary, I was like, this cannot even get more bizarre than it already is. One of the statements from the defense was that OJ couldn't have committed the murder because he was immobile and he had bad knees and he sometimes was barely able to walk around. Whereas the prosecution brought out this workout tape that OJ had recorded three weeks before the murder where he's actually like working out and it looks like he's very mobile and he's talking about that he's never felt this good in his entire life. So that kind of wiped out that process. There was like challenges on the timeline where he actually was there was evidence that there was his DNA at the scene, that there was a bloody shoe print. 
and the shoe print belonged to a specific shoe that OJ claimed that he didn't own, but he actually did. And then there was Mark Furman, who is the police detective that apparently was racist, and they think that he planted evidence. You've got the Cato Caitlin neighbor who was a significant witness to the trial. The bloody glove, this Bloomingdale Isotoner glove that was only available at a certain store with a certain type that they feel like OJ was wearing when he murdered Nicole and Ron. The famous video of where OJ is trying to put on both clubs and it looks like it doesn't fit. I mean, this whole trial was like an episode of Law & Order. It was bizarre. It had so many twists and turns. Half the time you were believing that he did it and the other half you were like, there's no way that he did it. And according to this documentary, there were actually 50 million viewers that were watching this trial day in and day out. 50 million viewers. That's how just dramatic this whole thing was. And at the end of the day, the jury came back, rendered their verdict. And what was crazy, I actually remember when the verdict came in. I was in college. And we were sitting in my microeconomics class. I can still remember it to this day. I can picture the room. And we must have had, I must have had like an old fashioned cell phone or something. I just remember there was like murmuring in the classroom. And we realized that the verdict had come in. And we heard that it was not guilty. And we were just shocked. Back to the facts, jury came back in four hours. They went through 37 weeks of trial back and forth materials. And the jury came back in four hours and said, not guilty. That's insane. On top of that, according to the documentary, this trial really split the race line. When the verdict came out, you saw in videos Black people cheering and white people looking on with disbelief. Now, of course, that's a blanket statement. You know, everyone is an individual. But there was this sense that there were loyalties across both lines. And this trial really kind of pushed the boundaries of that. So this case was completely fascinating. And to just see all the evidence, see all the effort that went into trying to convict this guy and present him as this abusive, evil, vindictive, premeditated individual that carried out this act. And then for him to walk out that door after that trial concluded, that was simply shocking. So fast forward to today, the parents of Nicole and Ron took him to civil court, which he lost. He ended up getting arrested for robbery. So his life has not been on an upswing since this trial. It really apparently weighed on him. But this was by far the trial of the century. So the last case I wanted to mention was a episode of CNN that recapped the murder of John Benet Ramsey. And this was touted as one of the greatest unsolved crimes in history. So to recap, John Monet Ramsey 
was a six-year-old girl that was allegedly kidnapped on Christmas night in 1996. Keep in mind, this is a year after the OJ trial. So she was in her house in Boulder, Colorado. And to kind of set the stage a little more, her parents had just moved to Boulder um, from Atlanta. The dad was a software mogul, CEO of his company, lived his life very publicly. The mom was a former beauty queen, living the high life. They lived in an amazing house in Boulder. And then they had two children, John Bonet and her brother, Burke. It was Christmas Eve. They were planning to fly out for vacation. They had a chartered plane ready to go the next morning. And the mom is walking around the house. She notices that there's a note on the stairs. There's three pages of information. And the note says that these kidnappers have her six-year-old daughter. And they ask for $118,000 worth of ransom. Of course, she panics. She's running all over the house. She's looking for her daughter can't find her, gets the dad mobilized. The note, of course, says don't contact the police or it says the child will be beheaded, which is pretty extreme. They're looking all the house. They don't see any signs of struggle. They don't see any signs of forced entry. They decide to call the police. One other note for John Bonet, and this kind of adds to a little bit of the sensationalism of the story, is that she herself was somewhat of a beauty queen her mom kind of had that history. John Bonet pretty much followed suit. She did performances at malls. She was like in the Christmas parade. She had been in a lot of beauty pageants. So she was probably fairly well known to the community based on her involvement in those things. When the police arrived, they were looking all over the place, trying to figure out, you know, will there be a ransom? Will there be a call? What's going to happen? Eventually, and this is the part that seemed very weird to me, but eventually they decided to explore the whole house, which I'm not sure why they didn't do that in the beginning. And they end up finding John Bonet in the basement, her hands tied, duct tape over her mouth, her skull has been fractured, potentially she's been assaulted and covered by a blanket. And she had been clearly strangled and tortured. Just to recap, and I'm I'm just adding my personal flair here. Your child who is six has gone missing. And for some reason, you did not look through the entire house. I do not understand how that happened, but it did. So they also see that there is an open window in the basement where the perpetrator might have come through. At this point, all hands on deck. Everybody's a suspect. The ransom note was very sketchy. It was torn from the mom's notepad. The instrument used to strangle John Bonet came out of the mom's like arts and crafts. The parents' demeanor was off. According to the police, they felt like they weren't acting like typical parents. The parents ended up doing an interview with CNN. They kind of refused to talk to the police. So the police were surprised that they were you know, agreeing to do all these public appearances. And the police continued to do their investigation. They identified a DNA of an unknown male on John Bonet. They hired a special investigator to try to figure out, are there suspects? You know, who could be out there? They looked at the brother. They looked at the parents. They looked at the housekeeper. 
There was a guy who played Santa that had interactions with her. They had a a pretty good list of suspects, but they still weren't able to connect the dots to what happened to this child. The Ramseys ended up putting up a $100,000 reward to try to coax a tip out of someone, and that never seemed to pan out. The district attorney at some point decided to convene a grand jury because they wanted to indict the parents because somehow they felt like the parents had to have something to do with this. With the jury convening, it appeared that they did not want to indict the parents. So that kind of fell by the wayside. So just time went by where this was left unresolved. The mom, Patsy, ended up dying 10 years later. And then right after she passed, this random guy, John Mark Carr, confesses to the murder. He's some teacher in the middle of Thailand. It seemed like he's someone that just wanted to get attention. Um, They did a DNA test. The DNA did not match. At the time, the DNA testing had gotten better. So they also used the DNA to test the family. That, of course, didn't match. So it was just craziness how a child, your own child or family member, was under such duress in your own house. Nobody heard it. Now, granted, I will say it was a 7,000 square foot house. Let's leave it at that. It is possible to be in a house that large and not hear what's going on. But you're essentially saying a stranger walked into this person's, a stranger walked into a house where three other people were sleeping, took the child, killed the child, snuck out, took time to write a three-page note Because unless he stole the paper from the mom's notepad like days before, he had to have some time to write the note and then able to get out scot-free with no witnesses and nobody around them. This was the oddest case ever. And of course, it attracted the nation because of just how beautiful this young girl was. All of the pictures that they released to the public were her beauty pageant pictures. So she had a lot of makeup. Her hair was coiffed. She looked like an innocent young girl. And then there was a lot of scrutiny on the parents for so long. One, just wondering how they let this happen. But two, were they involved? And then there was even scrutiny on the brother, who was slightly older than John Bonet. But given that he was sleeping just a few rooms down, surprising that he didn't hear anything, um, had no you know input into what was happening with her. So just this case was just bananas. And certainly, even to this day, has gone unresolved. And in the CNN recap, they were interviewing the dad, who is still alive, And he talked about just the pressure of being in the crosshairs of the prosecution, knowing that people thought that he was potentially involved and knowing that, you know, all he wanted to do was to get his daughter back and get her back alive. So you could see the guilt and the um, sadness when they interviewed him. He has since moved on. He's gotten remarried. But he knows that there's a chance that he'll never find the answers that he's looking for, which is sad and unfortunate. Those are the three stories I wanted to bring up in relation to true crime. I will say these stories are certainly stranger than fiction. But what I find that kind of is the common thread with these stories that I really think 
underlines what a true crime story has to epitomize for it to be something that is, you know, truly kind of a cut above the rest, so to speak. It has to have some level of sensationalism. I referenced earlier that, you know, one of these stories was like straight out of a Hollywood movie. Well, if you just think through the three stories I just talked about, they are like Hollywood quality movies. You've got wealthy families in Beverly Hills. You've got an NFL Hall of Famer Heisman winner. You've got a beauty pageant doll who was beautiful and everybody loved her that suddenly is no longer with us. So that whole level of just sensationalism, I think is, is one aspect of these stories. I think the other that makes it you know, even more just poignant is the level of overkill or the heightened level of drama related to the actual crime. So with the parents, they were brutally murdered. It was very messy and just very personal with Nicole and Ron just on their front porch and it was very violent. The number of times they were stabbed was just excessive and certainly very personal. John Bonet, just a young girl who was strangled and tied up in her own basement. We were looking for this beautiful girl and she's under our roof in our house at the basement, just a few feet away where we couldn't hear or couldn't save her. So that that whole thing really kind of builds itself into that kind of overkill, that drama around the actual crime. And then I think the other aspect that makes this, you know, really just stranger than fiction is that the truth in all of these stories has some element of gray areas. When you think about why the Menendez brothers said that they killed their parents, there's that abuse aspect, both sexual, emotional abuse that they brought into the story that really kind of changes the perception for those who actually believe their story. It changed the perception of maybe what they did was justified. It's not black or white as it relates to what happened in that situation if you choose to believe their self-defense story. For OJ, even though OJ had a lot of evidence against him, there was a lot of evidence to the contrary to where it could have happened, but the level of reasonable doubt is significant. Those jurors had a really tough decision to make, even though they seemed to make it fairly quickly, but there definitely appeared to be enough evidence to say, look, it's probably likely that it happened, but not beyond a reasonable doubt because of all the factors that kind of went against the original premise that the prosecutors brought to the table. And then with John Benet Ramsey, we still don't know what happened. There is no like specific like understanding of why this child was targeted, why someone would hurt her in such a way, why they would murder her in her own house, why they would leave such a lengthy note and request for ransom that they never acted upon or followed up on. So that whole scenario just says and begs the question, if the parents weren't involved or the brother's not involved because the DNA didn't match, then what's the other explanation? Somebody's got to know something. Just those kind of open questions where you don't really have a finale or you don't really have a gotcha 
that really solidifies what actually happened. I think that's what lends itself to some of these true crime stories. You know, some evidently do come to a resolution, but by far many of them do not. And it leaves the open question, will they ever get resolved? That's just my two cents on the whole true crime genre. I find it very fascinating. I think that the world finds human behavior uh, very fascinating. That's probably why one of my favorite scripted shows is Criminal Minds, because they focus on the mind of the perpetrator. Like, what was the root cause of why this person decided to do what they did or why they felt justified in doing what they did? And I think a lot of these shows, even though the crime itself is really the catalyst for the conversation, it's also just as fascinating to understand the root causes and the reasons why people do what they do. If you have that much angst, anger, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of unfairness, jealousy, love, lust, whatever it might be, if those are the feelings that drive that type of behavior, and we all have the capacity to feel that, it it does make you wonder, do we all have that capacity to do something that extreme if we were pushed to that level? So I'm not saying we're all prone to commit crimes or do something that's completely egregious, but what I am saying is a lot of the drivers of what these crimes are about truly reside in all of us. So I hope you found this topic very fascinating. I look forward to part two, where we'll talk about a few more of these scenarios that are worthy of the conversation. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this season. I'm really excited about what's in store and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.